This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, Emma Straub, has written a new novel called This Time Tomorrow. It's on the list of books our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, recommends reading this summer. Maureen described it as a time travel fantasy imbued with Straub's signature awareness of the infinite ways we humans make life harder for ourselves. Straub's other books include All Adults Here, The Vacationers, and Modern Lovers. She's also co-owner of the Brooklyn independent bookstore Books Are Magic. She spoke with Fresh Air's guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley. Who hasn't in some way looked at life and wondered, what would it be like to go back in time to make different choices? Maybe relive a chapter that set the path forward to where you are now. Emma Straub explores the possibility in her new novel called This Time Tomorrow. It's about a woman named Alice who is living a quaint life in New York City, working as an admissions officer at the same private high school she graduated from while tending to her ailing father. The morning after Alice's 40th birthday, she wakes up to find herself back in the year 1996, reliving her 16th birthday, and she gets a chance to answer a question that many of us wish we could. Is there anything in the past that we would change, given the chance? Emma Straub, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. I was hoping that you'd start with the reading, the moment that your main character, Alice, wakes up after a night of drinking on her 40th birthday and finds herself in her childhood home on the morning of her 16th birthday. Can you set up that scene? Sure. So um, Alice has been... um with her father in the hospital. Uh, he's very sick, dying, and um, and she's quite used to seeing him that way, um, as so many of us have um, seen our loved ones hooked up to too many machines in a sterile, cold room. Um, and as you say, she has uh, gone out celebrating and found herself the next morning in her childhood bedroom And she's just come out um, to see her dad healthy, vibrant, in his 40s, sitting at the kitchen table. Leonard Stern was sitting in his spot at the kitchen table. There was a cup of coffee next to him and an open can of Coca-Cola. Next to his drinks, Leonard had a plate with some toast and a few hard-boiled eggs. Alice thought she could see an Oreo, too. The clock on the wall behind the table said that it was 7 in the morning. Leonard looked good. He looked healthy. Healthier, actually, than Alice could ever remember him looking. He looked like he could run around the block if he wanted to, just for fun, like the kind of dad who could play catch and teach his kid how to ice skate, even though he absolutely wasn't. Leonard looked like a movie star, like a movie star version of himself, handsome, young, and quick. Even his hair looked bouncy, its waves full, and the deep, rich brown they'd been in her childhood. When had his hair started to gray? Alice didn't know. Leonard looked up and made eye contact with her. He turned to look at the clock, turned back to Alice and shook his head. You are up early, though. A new leaf. I like it. What was happening? What a scenario to wake up to and to see a parent young again. Thinking about that moment when Alice travels back in time, her 16-year-old self wakes up, she hears her dad in the kitchen, and um, she sees her father for the first time when he was younger. 
take me to that moment. I mean, I think it is one that if we put ourselves in that position um, and think about the person that we love, um, a parent that we love, what were the most important questions she had or new insights that she walked away with seeing her father sitting there in that moment? You know, I think that all of us, if we close our eyes, we can we can picture the places we grew up, the house we grew up in, and we can hear those noises, the familiar noises, the ones that are so mundane, so quotidian, you know, that you would never, you'd never even think to write it down, you know, um, the sound of a, someone brushing their teeth or the sound of the toilet flushing or the sound of someone making coffee in the morning. Um, but Alice, when she walks into that room, all of a sudden, you know, those things are like a symphony. I mean, it's, it's because she knows, because she knows how fleeting it is and that, that in her current life in the present day, um, she's never going to hear those things again. And so to be able to hear them again, um, is, is, is just a beautiful, meaningful experience. Your book comes at a time when the world is really into stories about the multiverse and, and time travel. Why do you think that is? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I can't speak to, you know, the, uh, like the Marvel cinematic multiverse that, that sort of thing is, um, above my pay grade. But what I do know is that I am one of several, um, writers I know who are mothers of small children who have written time travels during the pandemic. And I think it's because the past few years have been so wildly unsettling for all of us, um, that some of us who happen to be novelists, um, started looking for a way out. Um, or, or, or an explanation or some comfort. I certainly know that, that thinking about this book and writing this book and, um, experience the experience of writing it felt to me, um, like, like true, true time travel and, and just a, a much, much needed escape. You know, this book is not a memoir, but, but you make that very clear, um, that it is the closest that you've come to an autobiographical work. And Alice, the main character in the book, is close to her father, who is a writer. And in real life, you're close to your father, Peter Straub, who is also a well-known author. And like your main character, Alice, you were by your father's side as well during this pandemic as he battled sickness. What was it about this moment that made you want to write about something that's so close to your real life when it comes to time travel? Yeah, you know, it's it's something that I have never done before. Um, you know, there are always, um, you know, little shards of me, little little sprinklings of, of me um, and sort of my, my actual life throughout all my books. Um, but I, but I had never turned to fiction in quite this way. Um, and really what, 
what made me know that it was all right uh, was because it was something that I had seen my father do. Um, my dad has written a lot of a lot of books and a lot of very scary books. Right, as a horror writer, yes. Yes. And I saw that that one of the things he was always able to do in his books was to use things that had been really difficult for him in his life, um, particularly like, you know, traumatic things that had happened to him in his, in his childhood, um, as a certain kind of fuel maybe uh, for some of his work or to use writing as a certain kind of processing tool, um, you know, not writing as therapy, nothing like that. Um, but just, you know, writing is such a powerful way of getting inside your feelings. Um, at least for me in a way that, that, um, I, I don't really have access to in another way. I've always used writing, um, as a way to further understand, um, myself and other people and writing about characters that were going through something like what my father and I were going through. It felt so good to me, um, to let the art do its work, you know, like it's, I mean, it's, it is a novel that I think that anyone who has had a loved one, a sick loved one, um, or who has been through a death of a parent, um, people will be able to see, I hope, um, you know, their own experience and, and to, and to get into those feelings, um, because I, I was feeling it so deeply when I was writing. Your father uh, was hospitalized for quite some time um, in August of 2020 with a heart condition. How is he right now? He's all right. He's sending me text messages about um, all my all his thoughts about my my book tour and my book. He's reading it again for I think the fourth or fifth time. Um, he's terrific. He's terrific. He is. I'm interested to know, as, as someone deeply invested in interrogating relationships in all of your books, was there ever a time, maybe when you were younger, you mentioned your dad has already read this book four times, was there ever a time when you rejected his critiques? Um, no, no. You know, it's, I, I, I really... I can't, I can't overstate how lucky I am to have the dad I do, especially as a writer. Um, because I think that he always understood, he always understood what it was I wanted to do. Um, and never doubted me for a moment. And, you know, I think I think often writers' parents, um, you know, suggest other things like maybe law school. <laughs> mm. I don't know something something that um, might have some uh, guarantee. As we mentioned, the character in the book Leonard is sick and he's hospitalized, and his daughter Alice uh, visits him daily. You had to do that in real life. Um, how did the process of, of writing this book help you in processing your father's aging and, and his mortality? 
Well, um, shout out to my therapist. Um, you know, so my <laughs> therapist and I have talked about this a lot. Um, and she uses the, the term pre-grieving. And I think that, I think it's something that so many of us have to do, um, you know, when, when our loved ones are ill over a long, long, long period of time, um, you know, I, I, I think I used to think about death as quite a simple, um, thing, you know, something that happened in one moment and before it, uh, you know, that you couldn't prepare and that afterwards was after, um, and that's when the grieving began. But, but I, but I know that's not the case. Um, and because I know how much, um, how much time loved ones really have to sit with, with the inevitability of their loved one's death. And, and I certainly did that with my dad while I was working on this time tomorrow. Your main character, Alice, is sitting with her her own life choices. She's turning 40. She works in the admissions office of the high school she graduated from. Her job is a daily reminder of her life choices. There's this line in the book where you write, Sometimes Alice felt like everyone she knew had already become whatever they were going to become, and she was still waiting. And I was struck by that because I was also wondering if you think this is kind of a phenomenon of middle age where we're sitting with our place um, Mm -hmm. in the moment that we're in. Yes, I do. I do. Very much so. I mean, I... I am now 42, although because I turned 40 in 20, in April of 2020, I haven't fully accepted that yet. And so I, I think I'm just going to keep turning 40 until, (laughs) until I feel like we've really moved into the next phase. Um, but in any case, yeah, I, I think that, uh, so many people in my generation, feel that way that, you know, we've been waiting for, for some sort of flag to come down, um, that says, oh yes, now you are entering this phase of your life. Um, because I think when you're a child, you look at your parents who have made whatever decisions they've made about, you know, where to live, what jobs to have, what, you know, school you go to all, all of those like big, major, major life choices, um, and then you look around and you, and you realize that, that it's your turn, um, to, to make these, to make these really, to build these enormous blocks of your life. Um, and that you're no longer, that you're no longer in the sort of preliminary stage. Um, and I think it's, it's really easy to look at your choices in your twenties, um, and say, oh, this doesn't really matter. You know, I'm just, I'm just doing this for now, whatever it is. Um, but of course each choice, each choice we make leads to another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity. And so I definitely feel like, you know, my early 40 something cohort, uh, is definitely looking around, especially right now in the world that we live in saying like, wait a minute, I didn't sign, I didn't sign this form, (laughs) (laughs) agreeing, agreeing to have this be, um, my full, my full adulthood. Yeah. One of the other things your character, Alice is, is most surprised by at this stage of middle age is 
when she time travels to the 90s, she sees just how young and vibrant her father really was back then. And I think we've all had experiences like that, maybe looking at old videos or or photos and thinking, I really thought my mom and dad were old back then, but they were so young. And I'm just wondering, in writing this book, did you in any way come to this realization about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I have been having this experience in in writing this book and thinking about this book um, that, you know, I feel like I'm, remi- I'm reminding myself, you know, that I am still young and that I will never be this young ever again. <laughs> um, and yes, like, do my knees make crinkly noises when I walk upstairs? They do. They definitely do. Um, but But I do take comfort from from the fact that like <laughs> I have written this, um, this novel that, that, that really is a reminder, um, to appreciate, appreciate everything. I mean, the other night at my, at my, my book launch for this time tomorrow, I was, I was sitting off to the side while my, my friend Stephen Merritt, um, sang a couple of songs and I was watching my two children and my husband and my parents in the front row and I was so aware that that might never happen again you know that I might never who knows who knows when I will publish my next book who knows um how everyone's health will be who knows who will be here? You know, I just, I was so moved just staring at my family and thinking like, this is right now. This is right now. I have all of this right now. Um, and I, I mean, you can't ask for more than that. Do you think that writing this book in a way was was the gift of being able to see that? Because I do think that maybe a limitation of the human experience is that we are always thinking about the future or the past. We're never really squarely in the present. People do things to to allow themselves to be there. There are devices, but those moments where you can truly sit in the now and the present, it's kind of a hard thing for us to do. Yeah. Oh, it's impossible. You know, I I know I, I have some friends who are who are poets and who are good at meditating and (laughs) (laughs) practice gratitude in a more active way. And I just, you know, I am an anxious person and I am always in motion. And yeah, those moments are really rare. And, and, you know, my hope is that when people read this book, that that's the feeling they will have or want. And then they maybe pick up the phone and call someone who they've loved for a long time and just say hello. We're listening to the conversation our guest interviewer Tanya Mosley recorded with novelist Emma Straub. Straub's new book is called This Time Tomorrow. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Justin Chang will review the new film Top Gun Maverick. Here's Stephen Merritt and his band The Magnetic Fields with his song Book of Love. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. The book of love is long and boring No one can lift the damn thing It's full of charts and facts 
facts and figures and instructions for dancing. But I back to our interview with Emma Straub. Her new novel, This Time Tomorrow, is one of our book critic Maureen Corrigan's recommendations for summer reading. Straub's other books include The Vacationers, Modern Lovers, and All Adults Here. She's also co-owner of the Brooklyn independent bookstore, Books Are Magic. This Time Tomorrow is a time travel fantasy. The main character, Alice, is turning 40. She's been spending a lot of time with her father at the hospital, where he's been ill with a heart condition. She's also been wondering if she's living the right life. After a night of drinking too much, she wakes up and finds herself back in 1996 on the day of her 16th birthday. Her father is younger, in his 40s, and healthy. The book is partially inspired by Emma Straub's experiences visiting her father, horror writer Peter Straub, during the months he was in the hospital. Emma Straub spoke with Fresh Air guest interviewer Tanya Mosley. You describe books for your family not as accessories, but appendages. And I thought that description was really interesting. They were attached to you. How so? Yeah. (laughs) Well, my dad, I mean, so my dad, to this day, my parents moved from the Upper West Side about six years ago and now live about five blocks away from us in Brooklyn. And... Even so, when my parents come over to our house, my dad always brings a book with him, just in case. <laughs> just in case he has a free moment. As, as if my two children would ever leave him alone. Uh, you know, not a chance. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was always like that. Both of my parents just read all the time, and books were... Um, a vital, a vital part of our home life. And I mean, there were, you know, there were bookshelves in every room, stacks of book, books on the floor in every room. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 there's no, there's no memory of anything that I ever did with my family without books. When I think about vaca- like childhood vacations, like going to Disney World, that sort of thing, what I really remember is like sitting next to the pool with my dad reading books. Really? At Disneyland? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is in the pool and you and your dad are on the side reading a book. Well, we'd take breaks, you know, we'd take breaks, go splash around, but but yeah, then back back to the back to the Lois Duncan, back to the Christopher Pike. You know, I had priorities. Yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, you know writing this book allowed 
you a little bit of space during the pandemic, just mental space to focus on the possibilities of a future and just to escape that um, that cloistered feeling that we all were feeling during that time. It also took you just a year to write this book. What, was that a record for you? You know, books take different periods of time to write, certainly. Um, but what can I what I can say about this time tomorrow is that it really felt um, it was the most immersive writing experience of my life. It absolutely just came out of me. And I don't mean in some like, you know, taking dictation from above sort of way. Um, but just that I was, I was so happy to work. I was so happy to be able to have time to write again after six months with zero childcare. Um, that I just I, I took such profound <laughs> pleasure in the work um, that I was devoted to task in a way um, that felt uh, new and and unusual. You know, Emma, in a way, your life feels like a novel. You're a daughter of writers and literature lovers in New York. You become a best-selling author. You open up a bookstore. <laughs> you said earlier, you kind of jumped. You said, you know, I graduated from college and then I started publishing. But there was some stuff in between that, right? And and that includes rejection. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I have so many rejection letters. I, I could go toe-to-toe with really just about anyone. Um, in terms of, um, the number of rejection letters that I racked up, um, I started writing novels. Really, it was like the moment, the moment I graduated from college, I declared myself a novelist, um, and I started writing books and, um, it was great practice um, the books were terrible, but, but, it, but I am so grateful that none of them got published. <laughs> <laughs> really looking back, you can see that you're happy about that. Yeah, Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I did, I got rejection letters. Two of my favorite rejection letters were from, uh, the two editors who I have worked with at, as an adult, um, they wrote me beautiful rejection letters and, and said quite clearly that I wasn't ready. Um, and I wasn't, they were right. You know, my, my editors, I, I have to say, are, are, are usually right. What did those lovely rejection letters say? Oh, there was one that was great. That was, uh, it was for a novel about a, a murderous poet. And um, the woman who is my editor now said that, she she loved the poems. <laughs> <laughs> you got what she was saying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I uh, was most captivated by in this book was this ability to be able to go to a time that I remembered very well, the 90s. We were about the same age. Back to a world before emails and social media what was that like for you to be able to situate yourself as a writer in that space and, and excavate? Oh, it was just heaven. It was just heaven. I, I mean, when I tell you that writing this book made me want to throw my telephone into the river. 
I just, you know, we, I think we forget because things happen so gradually, you know, sure. When did, like I, I had, I think I had a computer when I was in high school, I had AOL messenger, but, but it happened so gradually that, you know, okay, email, okay, computers, okay, cell phones, okay, iPhones, you know, the, 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 the creep of technology into every moment of our lives, you know, it's, it's insidious. Um, and it was, it, it did make me feel like I could breathe a little deeper to write about 1996 and to remember what it felt like. I think all of us who are of a certain age um, remember that freedom, especially as a teenager, of walking out of the house. You know, you've made a plan with your friend. You're going to meet them on the corner of 86th and Broadway or whatever, wherever it is. And you're going to go and stand there and you're going to wait for them to show up and you're going to do whatever it is. You're going to twiddle your thumbs. You're going to smoke a cigarette. You're going to write a poem in your notebook. Um, but you're not going to scroll through other people's lives for 30 minutes. You know, you're not, you're not going to have some sort of FOMO <laughs> moment. Um, you're just going to be right there. And I think that that is something that we are all missing so much right now. You know, I, I feel surgically attached to my telephone, um, you know, in, in ways that I think are good, you know, like, especially like on my book tour now, if I get a text from, from my husband with a picture of our children in real time eating breakfast or whatever, that, that is wonderful. And I love that. Um, I love that immediacy. But I, I don't like getting, getting, you know, sucked up into the swirl of um, social media when all of a sudden you say, oh, my God, I've lost an hour doing what? You have a pretty big presence on social media, though so many of your fans connect with you there. We see so much of your life. Yeah, I know. That's the rub for me because I think I certainly have some writer friends who, um, some friends period, not all of them are writers, who, who saw from a mile away how dangerous and toxic and time sucking it could be and just declined to participate. Um, but I am an extrovert and, um, and an extremely social person. (laughs) And I do, I love it. I love it. You know, I've always, I've always really enjoyed, um, the ability to be more connected to people who I don't see in my everyday life, um, through, through social media. And so, yeah, for me, it's, it's hard. I think maybe I need one of those accounts that like, you know, the teenagers have where like, nobody knows it's me. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. How do you cope with being an extrovert? I mean, reading and writing is such solitary activity. At least it feels like it. There seems to be a juxtaposition between your internal self and then your need to be external. Yeah, that's why it's really good that I have a bookstore. It's so healthy. (laughs) That feeds it for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, not only, you know, do I have like a brilliant, funny staff of people um, who I can always talk to about anything, whether it's 
books or movies or pizza or TikTok or, you know, whatever. Um, but also, it, you know, we're open to the public. So people just come in, people just come in. And because I live in the neighborhood where the bookstore is, and it's the neighborhood that I went to school in, my children go to school in, um, I really know everybody. It drives, it drives my husband absolutely crazy when we walk from our kid's school to the bookstore because it takes me about three times as long as it takes him because I stop and talk to so many people. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining us, my guest is Emma Straub, author of the new book, This Time Tomorrow. She and her husband own Books Are Magic in Brooklyn, New York. More after this break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teledoc.com slash fresh air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and we're talking with author Emma Straub about her new book, This Time Tomorrow. Straub is the author of four novels, which have been published in more than 20 languages. And Emma and her husband own Books Are Magic, an independent bookstore in Brooklyn, New York. New York is such a present character in so many of your your novels and of course in this one um have you ever thought about or or is there a desire to to think about other locales and other places as you um continue your journey as a as a writer and a novelist um yeah of of course of course um you know i think that if anything i've always been wary of writing New York City, just because so many people have and so many people do. And, um, you know, there's that, that sort of voice that says, like, does the world need another novel set in New York City? Um, but with this book in particular, there was no way to separate the story from the place. Um, you know, New York city was, was so much a part of the way I thought about the novel and, um, and what the novel meant to me. Um, and I think that, you know, even though, you know, I'm a New York city kid. And so if you happen to be a New Yorker, there will be things that, that resonate with you. My hope is that by, being as specific as I possibly can be with all of these places from my youth, that the reader finds themselves in the places of their youth. You know, it doesn't, yes, so the di my diner, three star on the corner of 86 and Columbus, um, a truly disgusting hole in the wall uh, that I loved with all my being. Um, that was where I went and ate French fries at two o'clock in the morning with my friends. Um, and maybe for someone else, it was a friendlies or a Denny's or something else entirely. If you could actually go back to your 16 year old self, what would you tell her? I would tell her to quit smoking. <laughs> mm. Do you still smoke? 
No, no, no. I, I was, I was a very good smoker. Um, but I, but I, but I quit, I quit in my early twenties. Um, but what else? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think I would tell her, um, if I could go back to my 16 year old self, I would ask more questions. I would feel less self-conscious. I think that teenagers, teenage girls in particular, waste like I don't know probably 75% of their of their brain cells feeling self-conscious at least I did um and I just think there was a room for a lot more in there um other feelings um and other conversations and yeah I mean I would say hang out with my parents more but the truth is I hung out with them all the time (laughs) You spent so much time with your dad in the hospital. Um, it, I thought it was really interesting that you said you all would talk about writing. We talk about what we are working on. We talk about things that we have written. Um, you know, what was, what was really um, unique in our relationship about the time that we had when he was in the hospital, he was there for four months. Um, and you know, nowadays when I am with my parents, I am often also with my children, um, which means that there's no sort of sustained adult conversation allowed. It means that every conversation is likely to be interrupted with questions about snacks or video games or, you know, anything. Um, and so my dad, my dad and I were able to talk or not talk or just sort of be together for hours, um, with no one else in the room. That slowed down time. It sounds like such a gift, but also such a scary moment. Was there ever a time when you were writing this book, processing all of this and, afraid that he wasn't going to make it? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Um, and he certainly thought so too. Um, I'm so glad that he is still here. Um, you know, just because I get to spend more time with him mostly, um, that's number one and that my children get to spend more time with him. Um, but also, that I got to give him this thing (laughs) and say, here, look, I made you this. Um, I think you'll like it. And then he does. Emma Straub, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for this book. Thank you so much for talking to me. I so appreciate it. It's an absolute thrill. Emma Straub's new novel is called This Time Tomorrow. She spoke with guest interviewer Tanya Mosley. Tanya hosts the podcast, Truth Be Told. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews Top Gun Maverick with Tom Cruise in the role he originated 36 years ago. This is fresh air. It's been 36 years since Tom Cruise played a hotshot Navy fighter pilot named Maverick in the 1986 blockbuster Top Gun. Now Cruise steps back into the role in the sequel, Top Gun Maverick, which hits theaters this week after being delayed almost two years by the COVID pandemic. 
Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. In one of the more memorable lines in the original Top Gun, Maverick gets chewed out by a superior who tells him, Son, your ego's writing checks your body can't cash. Sometimes I wonder if Tom Cruise took that put-down as a personal challenge. No movie star seems to work harder or push himself further than Cruise these days. He just keeps going and going, whether he's scaling skyscrapers in a new Mission Impossible adventure or showing a bunch of fresh-faced pilots how it's done in the ridiculous and ridiculously entertaining Top Gun Maverick. Cruise was in his early 20s when he first played Pete Maverick Mitchell, the cocky young Navy pilot with the aviator sunglasses, the Kawasaki motorcycle, and the need for speed. In the sequel, he's as arrogant and insubordinate as ever. Now a Navy test pilot in his late 50s, Maverick still knows how to tick off his superiors, as we see in an exciting opening sequence where he pushes a new plane beyond its limits. Partly as punishment, he's ordered to return to Top Gun, the elite pilot training school, and train its best and brightest for an impossibly dangerous new mission. One of his trainees is a hot-headed young pilot called Rooster, played by Miles Teller. Rooster is the son of Maverick's beloved wingman, Goose, who tragically died while flying with Maverick in the first Top Gun. Maverick's lingering guilt over Goose's death affects his relationship with Rooster. So does his desire to protect Rooster from harm, which generates some suspense over whether he'll end up choosing the young man for the assignment. And so the three screenwriters of Top Gun Maverick, including Cruz's regular Mission Impossible writer-director Christopher McQuarrie, have taken the threads of the original and spun them into an intergenerational male weepy a dad movie of truly epic proportions. They're tapping into nostalgia for the original, while aiming for new levels of emotional grandeur. To that end, the soundtrack features a Lady Gaga song, Hold My Hand, that's nowhere near as iconic a chart-topper as the original movie's Take My Breath Away, but tugs at your heartstrings nonetheless. Much of the plot is unabashedly derivative of the first Top Gun. Once again, Maverick runs afoul of growling authority figures, here played by Ed Harris and John Hamm. Cruz's former co-star Kelly McGillis is nowhere to be seen, but Maverick does get another perfunctory love interest, a bartender named Penny, nicely played by Jennifer Connelly despite the thanklessness of the role. What's interesting about Top Gun Maverick is how it isn't like its predecessor, mostly in terms of style. The first Top Gun, directed on a relatively low budget by the late Tony Scott, combined the aesthetics of a military recruitment video with some of the ripest homoerotic imagery ever seen in a major Hollywood movie. For better or worse, the sequel, directed by Joseph Kaczynski of Tron Legacy and Oblivion, is a much tamer, slicker, classier affair. Maverick no longer struts around in towels and tidy-whities, though he can still fly a plane like nobody's business. The action sequences are much more thrilling and immersive than in the original. 
you feel like you're really in the cockpit with these pilots, and that's because you are. The actors underwent intense flight training and flew actual planes during shooting. In that respect, Top Gun Maverick feels like a throwback to a lost era of practical movie making, before computer-generated visual effects took over Hollywood. You start to understand why Cruise, the creative force behind the movie, was so driven to make it. In telling a story where older and younger pilots butt heads, and state-of-the-art F-18s duke it out with rusty old F-14s, he's trying to show us that there's room for the old and the new to coexist. He's also advancing a case for the enduring appeal of the movies, and their power to transport us with viscerally gripping action and big, sweeping emotions. Which brings us to the movie's most powerful scene, in which Val Kilmer briefly reprises his role as Iceman, Maverick's former nemesis-turned-friend. Kilmer is in some respects Cruz's opposite, a one-time star whose career never quite found its groove, and who's been beset by health issues in recent years, including the loss of his voice due to throat cancer. His soulful presence here gives this high-flying melodrama the grounding it needs. Cruz may be this movie's immortal star, but it's Kilmer's aching performance that takes your breath away. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be comic, writer, and actor Sarah Silverman. She's known for breaking taboos in her comedy. She wrote about the most humiliating aspect of her childhood in her memoir, The Bedwetter. Wetting the bed was especially awful during sleepovers and her summers at sleepaway camp. Now The Bedwetter has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. 